God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We got to get that. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Well, if you have your Bibles and would like to open to Titus chapter 2, we're going to be looking at that somewhat today. We will touch on that a couple times. Um, and uh, we're going to be looking at primarily something that we've been singing a lot about today, and we're going to sing about a bit more, and that is a good gift. So let me ask you this. What is a good gift? What makes a good gift? I asked this on Facebook this week, hoping to get some responses. As of last night, uh, there were none. So, oh well, I guess you guys don't care what good gifts are. No, it's okay. I, so I got to thinking about this, and I was thinking, well, what makes a good gift a good gift? Because all of us, I think, my guess is, we've all received good gifts at different times, right? So uh, is, it, is it about, um, is a good gift the kind of gift that you get because you asked for it? You put it on your list, you shared it with your family, and someone said, oh, I'm going to buy that. I can afford it. They want it. I'm going to get it for them. Hey, does that make it a good gift? Or maybe it's the flexibility. Is a good gift just the ability for you to receive something, a.k.a. a gift card or cold, hard cash, so that you can get what it is you really want, right? Sometimes that's just easier. Unfortunately, I had a bad experience with that recently. My nephew just turned 22, and we, in our family, we tried to call and text, all that kind of stuff. Well, I sent him a, a card. Well, we ran into this debacle with the Postal Service twice recently. And so the first time, I was sending a card to my dad. It had pictures in it. Well, by the time it got to California, it had been open, and the pictures fell out. It's like, oh, the card made it, but none of the other stuff. So I learned my lesson, so I thought. So I bought a card. I put cash in it for my nephew, put it in one of those big envelopes you can get from the post office, mailed it there, saw the tracking number. It was delivered. It, they never got it. They don't. I don't know where it is. He find it. I can't. Nobody knows where it is. So anyways, all that to say, sometimes cold hard cash is good, but if it doesn't get there, it's not a good gift. Or are good gifts only the expensive gifts? You know, that really, really valuable thing. Is that what makes a good gift a good gift? As I thought about this during the week, I came up with a few ideas because I don't think it's any of those things. I think ultimately a good gift is a good gift when it's personal, when, when it's just for you, when you know that the person who bought it for you was thinking about you. I think that, or, or that maybe they didn't buy it for you, they maybe they just made it or got it for you, however it came to be in your possession. I think secondly, a good gift is good when it's meaningful. It's something maybe you didn't even think of. Maybe it's something you need. Maybe it's something just, oh, wow, you just really, ah, uh, it's that thing. Maybe a good gift, I think a good gift is a good gift when it's also surprising. Not so much the delivery. Sometimes good surprises are amazing delivery mechanisms for good gifts. But maybe it was something that you didn't ever realize you needed. Something that just, it, it it's like, oh, that's the perfect gift. And then I think another element of a good gift is when it's continual. We could think of this as something that keeps on going, keeps on giving, keeps on reminding you of the giver and your relationship with that person. 
Let me, let me share, I think I've shared this before, but let me tell you a brief uh, story about a uh, gift that we received as a family. A friend of ours is a designer, and she does a lot of desktop publishing. Well, she made this piece of art, and I saw it in her room, and I think, I, I think I've showed it to you, so I apologize about using the same illustration twice, but I, I want you to understand this. So she made this piece of art. It's all these ampersands and all the different fonts that these ampersands are in, and then on the bottom, it has a piece of Scripture from Ecclesiastes. But I think this, this is a really good gift. One, because it's personal. It's, it's personal. It's something that our friend Amanda made for us as a family. It was, it was on her wall, and she could have made millions of them. She could have sold them and probably made millions of dollars making these things available to everybody, but she didn't. She wanted to give it to only a few people, and it was, it was something from her to us and a couple of our other friends. But secondly, not only was this a good gift because it was personal from her to us, but it was meaningful because of what that symbol now represents. You know how an ampersand kind of brings two foreign concepts together. There's this, ampersand this, right? Well, in her idea, in her mind, she, wanted, she saw that ampersand as being sort of the, a symbol of friendship. In the, and then... Um, and in fact, in the, in the verse that's on the bottom, you may not be able to read it, but it's from Ecclesiastes 4.12. It says, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So the whole idea of friendship is that strength together. So it was a personal gift. It was a meaningful gift. Thirdly, it was a surprising gift. We had seen this art in her house. And when we moved into our house, she presented it to us there. It was surprising. We weren't expecting it. We didn't ask for it. I just commented that it was cool when I saw it at her house. And then it's continual because she not only made it for us, she put it in a frame for us, and then she helped us put it on a wall in our house. So if you ever come to our house, you see a picture of all of our kids when they're like little tiny, and then you'll see this big hampersand thing right next to it. But it's a continual reminder of our friendship of the bond that we have together. And, and now even that symbol is embedded in our minds, helping us think not only of the two concepts that the symbol is pulling together, but the two concepts that that ampersand represents in our friendship. And I bring that up today because I think it, it relates to the next sola that we are considering, and that is sola gratia or sola gratia. Salvation is a gift of God that we receive by grace alone. Salvation is a gift of God that we receive by grace alone. As you know, over the last few weeks, we've been considering the other solas, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola fide, faith alone, as, as all being elements of our faith and foundational markers of, of what sets us apart as Christians. And as we've studied that, Ephesians 2 has come up several times. In fact, we sang about that this morning. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, as Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, he's clearly delineating that salvation is a gift of grace, which then begs the question, what is grace? What is Grace, you know, the, the typical definition that I've heard is that grace is unmerited favor. 
Well, that actually takes defining by itself. What in the world is unmerited favor? It just sounds like theological gobbledygook. In other words, it's a gift. It's not something we earn or work for. It is free. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would add to that it's free, but it's not cheap because it costs Christ so much for us to have this free gift of grace. But there's another element of grace. Carl Truman, one of the guys I read about, read uh, a lot from this week, calls grace the active outworking of God's unmerited favor in the life of the church and the believer. It's this ongoing thing in, in our lives. And so there's this sort of twofold facet. There's this transactional grace. Christ died on the cross, rose from the grave. If we receive his free gift by faith, that is the transaction. Now we receive this gift of grace. But then there's this ongoing element of grace, this part of grace that keeps going, that we see day in and day out. And we're going to look at that um, briefly today. Really, the, the first part, that transactional part, is something we see in, in the first three elements that we talked about, it being personal, personal, meaningful, and surprising. And then as we see, God has given us a, the beauty of means of grace as a means of helping us experience grace continually. So let's consider this gift of grace Sola gratia is a great gift from God, first of all, because it's personal. Because it's personal. We could contrast this with the idea that grace or the forgiveness that God has is universal. No. God's grace is personal. And let me help you understand, help us understand this. The idea here is that this gift of grace, while I believe is sufficient for the salvation of everybody who would believe, for all of the world... It is specific to the salvation who, of those who are called and who respond. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I think it's important for us to recognize that you in this passage is singular. It's not you, plural, everybody. It is you, meaning you and I must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in order to receive this free gift of grace. We love to quote John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And some people want to say, well, God loves everybody, so God's going to save everybody. That's not what this is getting at. I believe he does love the whole world, but notice the caveat that Jesus puts in there. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him. This becomes an individual response, a personal response to God's global love. This gift of grace is personal. It's not something I can give you. It's not mine to give. I can teach about it. I can preach about it. I can share about it. I can talk to you till I'm blue in the face about the good things of God's gracious gift, but I can't give it to you. It must be given to you from God, and you must receive it from him. Your parents can't give it to you. They can teach about it. They can model it. I'm hoping, I hope they do, or hope they did. It is something that you must receive from God. Romans 3, 23 to 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified 
by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are all fallen and sinful. And the means of justification for each one of us is by receiving his free gift, his gift, his grace as a gift. Another familiar Romans passage reminds us of the personal nature of our salvation and our justification. Romans 8, Romans 8, 28 to 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those, notice those individuals, like, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. But notice that this is a personal gift. And this is the hard part for some of us to hear. This is a personal gift because it's selective. Because it's selective. I mean, think about this. We don't give gifts to everyone. There are certain people that you and I choose to give gifts to, right? We exchange gifts with my brother's family. We get all the, their 10 million kids' presents on their birthdays. We get, no, they only have five kids. But we give their kids presents. We give my brother and his wife presents. We get together with Danielle's family once a month, and we pick all the birthday people, and we give them gifts. We sometimes do gifts for anniversaries, but we don't give gifts to everybody. I mean, we would be paupers if we gave gifts to everybody. And in much the same way, God in his sovereignty has chosen whom he will give his gift of grace to. And yet there's, God, God has chosen who he's, who he's going to give this gift of grace to. And yet there is also what Reformed theologians call common grace, which is something that God gives to all humanity. Carl Truman defines common grace this way. He says it's God's unmerited but not salvific. There's a big word for you, really talking about not salvation-oriented. There's something that God does for everybody. His favor toward fallen creation that restrains evil and allows human beings to flourish in this earthly realm. There are things that God does for everyone that allows us to live in a wholesome and and flourishing society if we would simply obey the general laws and commands. It is a gracious gift that everyone, all of humanity, whether we believe in God or not, receives. But then there is this personal, special, saving grace which God provides through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the grace of God has some universal elements to it. But the salvation as a gift of grace is specific and it's personal. But next we see that salvation by grace alone is a grace gift of God because it's meaningful. Some gifts are meaningful because we never thought of them, but also because they tell us something of the giver. In much the same way, the saving grace of God is meaningful because it brings life and flourishing to us. Sometimes, and I I want us to be careful in thinking about salvation this way, sometimes we think about salvation purely as eternal fire insurance. We think about it as, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to believe this. Woohoo! I got my fire insurance. Now I can live however I want. And that is an abuse of grace. 
But God's grace didn't just save us so that one day we would go to heaven or one day we would avoid hell. God saved us so that we would do something here. And Melody read about that earlier. Look at what it says in in Titus, again, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives present age, waiting for the blessed hope, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who himself uh, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This salvation doesn't just mean that we get to escape at the end. This salvation means that we should be transformed, that there should be some difference in our life. It should impact how we speak. It should impact our ethics. It should impact how we live with our neighbors. We, and as we recognize that we don't deserve the salvation that Jesus gives us, we in turn can live grateful lives. And we get to demonstrate that gratefulness as we put aside our fallen nature and take up godliness, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, as Paul writes there, all while we're awaiting that eternal realization of what Jesus has purchased for us. But not only is this gift personal and meaningful, but it's surprising. We didn't know we needed it. A few years ago, a friend of mine got glasses for the first time, and he was in his 40s. And it was so funny. I ran into him, and I saw him with glasses. Like, hey, man, I like your glasses. And he said, he's like, you know, I didn't realize how beautiful my wife was until I put glasses on. His whole life, for the first 40-something years of his life, he had been living with a fuzzy picture of the world around him. He needed to see Tom and Robin far earlier than that, and he just never, they would have helped him out. And yet he was surprised at how beautiful his wife was when he could see her clearly. In much the same way, the grace of God, his salvation through Jesus Christ is surprising because for many of us, we didn't know we needed it until we were made aware until the Holy Spirit said, I'm calling you. I want you to receive this gift. Sure, there may have been a void. There may have been something that we were longing for. Pascal has, has said that there's a God-shaped void inside of all of us. And so we're pining, we're looking, we're working for something to fill that void. And a lot of times as Americans, we fill it with busyness. Well, let me just avoid thinking about the void by doing stuff. We get busy. We get busy doing this. We pick up that hobby. We do that job. We visit with these people, and we try to spend as little time by ourselves in our own silence as possible. We get busy buying things. We fill up this void with toys or clothes or stuff that is just a long, slow road to the junkyard. Or we build things. Not that any of that is bad, but we just begin building things in our lives in order to avoid paying attention to that void that is within us. And yet, it's when that whole, and the Holy Spirit says, you need to fill this void and none of that is going to do it. 
I have the answer for you. There's always something more that we long for. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that he, meaning God, made everything beautiful in his time. And also he put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's this thing that God has placed in us that we all know. I mean, if, you, if we were to go out to Wayland Commons after church today, if we were to talk to folks and say, what happens after you die? Some people might just say, well, that's the end. Other people will say, well, we go to heaven. Unless we're really, really bad, then hell is reserved for places like Hitler and Osama bin Laden or whoever else. Name some big serial killer, and that's, where hell, that's who deserves hell in their mind. There's something in us that wants something beyond this life, that longs for that, and yet we don't know how we're getting there. Paul writes in Romans that we are without excuse because even, even the salvation of God, we are blinded by our own fallenness. Romans 1, 19 to 21 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, and they became, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what's more, we became like dead people walking. We sang about this today. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then these two little words jump off the page. And that's that moment the Holy Spirit tugs on our heart when, he, when we read, but God. But God. And like my friend putting on his glasses for the first time, we get a, we get a chance to feel that surprising presence of but God in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. But God reveals the depth of his surpassing love and the lengths to which he will go to maintain both his holiness and justice and demonstrate his love and mercy and grace to all humanity. God's love and justice is fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ. His mercy and grace is demonstrated in that very same event. Paul describes it this way in Titus 3, 4 to 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist, I want you to insist on these things. He's teaching Titus this, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These, are, these things are excellent and profitable for people. All that to say, we didn't know we needed salvation. I think we knew we needed something, but we didn't know exactly what it was 
until God stepped in, put the spiritual glasses on our soul and revealed our sin to us and revealed our salvation through Jesus Christ. So God's gift of grace is personal. You have to receive it. It's meaningful. It should make a difference in our lives. It should change how we live. It's surprising because it was unexpected and it is certainly undeserved. But finally, we get to see that God's grace is a good gift because it's continual. It's everlasting. Not only do we get everlasting life, he grants us eternal life, but there's more. As we touched on briefly thinking about the meaningful nature of God's grace, it impacts our lives today. And God's grace is continually manifested to us in what theologians call the means of grace. Means of grace. Theologians use this term to denote institutions ordained by God to be the ordinary channels of grace to the souls of of humanity. Carl Truman writes that grace must always be connected to the work of Christ, not simply in its origin in the merciful will of God, but also in its execution. This is because grace is not a divine sentiment. It is the concrete divine response. I want you to hear that. Grace is the concrete, divine God response to the human problem of sin and death that is manifested in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot talk about grace without talking about Christ. Grace is Christ, not an abstraction. And so these institutions that God pulled together that God ordained to demonstrate his means of grace. There are four of them, and you can see those in your blanks. They are the church, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. So let's consider them briefly, the church. We often think about the church as what we do. We come together to do church. In fact, Truman again writes, he says, we we use language like we ask how we do church. We look for new ways to do church. We wonder how other people do church And in each case, the church is presented as something that we do as an act of Christians, presumably in response to what God has done for us in Christ. We think of church in that way as being us to God. And yet I think it's important for us to recognize the church as a means of grace is God's good gift to us. There are elements of what we do when we gather in gratefulness. But each of us as followers of Christ, as covenanted members, get to participate in one another's lives. Think about this. The very same spirit that that inspired the, the word of God, inspired writers to pen the words that we read about and consider on these pages is that very same Holy Spirit that indwells you and me. And so when we speak into one another's lives, we are speaking the grace of God to one another. Speaking of one another, there are over 50 encouragements or commands in the New Testament dealing just with one another, not to mention all the other commands that are designed to help us live life as believers. We're called to love one another, to care for one another, to bear with one another, to put up with one another, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to speak to one another, even to sing to one another. Danielle and I were at a, we were at a funeral on Friday for her aunt, and the pastor sang, and so I decided I would start to try to sing a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But when we sing, when we sing praise songs to God, 
in the presence of one another, we get to be an encouragement. So I hope you sing loud and proud. Even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, God loves that tune. All of these things and more are the tangible means of us interacting with each other and experiencing the continual grace of God. Because we've been purchased as the assembled people of God, we are now his new creation. And the church, the assembled people of God, is what, we get to demo- is what demonstrates that. In addition to experiencing the church as a means of grace, we get to experience the word as a means of grace. This is why the word is so central in our, in our gatherings. Think about this. Just this morning, we've been called to worship with the word. We sang songs that came directly from the word, that were inspired by the word. We often pray the word. We read the word. The word is preached. The word of God informs what we do when we gather. But the word also informs how we should live outside of this place, how we should love outside of this place. This is why I think personal and family devotions can be so helpful as we read and reflect on God's speech. And I want you to think about this. The Word of God. Scripture is the Word of God which reveals the will of the eternal God condensed into our language. So when we read it, we get the mind of the triune God that we worship. We, we get it by reading, meditating, memorizing, and applying his word. God has taken what we may not be able to understand about how he's working in the world, condensed something for us, and now it's even divided into little chapters and verses so we can take something that just enough to, to get. Chew on it, meditate on it, think about it, apply it, read it, memorize it. What a gracious gift his word is. But in addition to that, the church and his word, we also experience means of grace in the sacraments. The sacraments or the ordinances consist of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we call it communion, but let's just real briefly consider these. Baptism, and there, there are several traditions of baptisms. There's paedo-baptism where children are baptized as a, as a sign of a covenant. Then there's what we do, credo-baptism, which is baptism in response to belief. And there are a few different modes of baptism. There's immersion and there's sprinkling. And I I don't want to split hairs over what I think is right and wrong. I'll talk a little bit about what we practice. But the fact is, the thing that we need to recognize is that baptism, baptism is a means of experiencing the grace of God. But what ultimately is baptism? How is it a means of grace? The Second London Baptist Confession says it, talks about it this way. It says that baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to, to be unto the party, the, in other words, the one who is baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of this being engrafted into him of the remission of sins and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and to walk in newness of life. So in other words, baptism, it's ordained by God. It's something God instituted. It's something he did. We didn't start it. Baptism doesn't make sense if it's something we started. But because God said, do this, 
We get to do this as a means of grace. It's a symbol or sign of our fellowship with Jesus Christ. This is part of the reason why I think immersion, being buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection, is the proper picture of of baptism. But if you were baptized in another way, I don't want to condemn you for being baptized that way. The idea is that we are baptized in fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's a picture of us being engrafted into Jesus. We identify with him. It's a picture of the new life that we enjoy with him. Sometimes we refer to baptism as going public with our faith. It is that, and it's more. It it is identification. It is a public acknowledgement that we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we get this means of grace in baptism, something that we do once. But then we also get this means of grace in the ordinance or the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or communion. And as you know, this is something we celebrate often on the first Sunday of the month. And it's, it, in many ways, we think of it purely as a memorial meal. We think of it as a way to remember. In fact, a lot, in fact Scripture tells us, do this in remembrance of me. It's a remembrance of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, but it is more than that. And Carl Truman, in his book, talks about this. If, if, think about this. If you're married, those of you who, who aren't yet married, think of, hear, hear this. If you're married, you know there's a way that you can talk to your spouse and you say, I love you. And there's a joke that I've heard people say, well, I told you I loved you when I married you, and if something changes, I'll tell you something else. But until I die, I love you. And so they'll just say it once, and that's it. But there are some people who have the habit, I hope you do, spouses, of reminding your loved one that you love them over and over again, right? But sometimes words just aren't enough. And so Carl Truman gave kind of an illustration about him giving his wife a gift. Well, let me tell you about a gift that my wife gave me a few years ago. She decided she knows that my love language is words of affirmation. And so she took an entire year and took up more than a hundred, I think it's more than half the year, 151 days, she wrote different things that were going on in our lives, different things that she loved about me, about our relationship, about God. This was a good, personal, special, surprising gift, but it's a reminder of her love for me. Does this change much? I mean, it increases my affection for her, increases her affection for me. It doesn't change the status of our relationship. So here's, here's what I want you to see, and here's what Carl Truman was getting at. The Lord's Supper, in many ways, is like that. When we eat the bread and drink the juice, it is a symbolic and experiential participation in what Christ has done. He writes this. He says, the supper gives us the same uh, Christ to feed on in a different way, from, from that provided by word alone, it involves taste, touch, and even sight for those, for those not blind. The supper enriches the way we receive Christ, not that it is necessary for salvation any more than a ring is necessary for marriage, but it does reinforce the seal, reinforce and seal the promises. And then he continues, the, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace because when it is attached to the word, it presses Christ on the believer in a powerful way. Just as this gift pressed the love of Christ, love of Danielle on me in a very meaningful way. So when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we get to experience 
the love of Christ in a different way. To eat the bread and drink the wine is not only to be reminded of Christ's sacrifice, but it is to know his presence through the Spirit. And so I hope that when we gather together, when we in, in two weeks celebrate the Lord's Supper together, when we eat the bread and drink that cup, it's not just a memorial snack, but it is something that reminds us of the depth of God's love for us. And there's one final means of grace or ongoing experience of God's grace that we have, and that is prayer. We see Jesus, by his sacrifice, redeemed our lives from the curse of sin. And in doing so, he became the ultimate mediator. No longer do we need a human priest to go before the Lord on our behalf. We have direct access to God. And one of the primary ways that we access God through Christ is in prayer, through communication directly to him. But it does seem like there are four ways that we get to experience that. One is the intercession of Jesus Christ himself. In fact, sometime this afternoon, let me encourage you to go and read John 17, because in that high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for you and me. Go find it. Read it this afternoon. Read what was on his heart the night before he was crucified. Read what was on his heart for you and me. But scripture also tells us, 1 John 2, 1 says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, he is continually interceding, advocating on our behalf for the Father. But not only do we have the intercession of Christ, we have the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We have the intercession of the Spirit. We have the intercession of Christ. We also have private prayer. We get to pray wherever we are. We're encouraged to go to our closets to pray so that there's not public acclaim for it. But we're, we, we can pray anywhere, in any format, in any position. We, can, we are welcome to pray. We get to talk with him, interact with him, cry with him, pour out our hearts to him. And even as my father-in-law says, we can laugh with God in prayer. But finally, we get public prayer. And sometimes when we pray together here, when, when, when we pray, it sometimes feels formal, and, and it is, and, and I think rightly so. But I love being led in prayer by the other elders. I love being led in prayer by them. I love the times of prayer we have on Wednesday, on Wednesday nights. But I love hearing how God is leading the elders to lead us in prayer as they take us to the throne of grace as they lead us to sit in awe of our gracious God, as they shepherd us through the realization and the confession of our sin, as they lead us to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, praising God for answered prayer. They lead us to mourn with those who are mourning, weep with those who are weeping, who are still in the midst of the struggle. And we see those names on the list. And as the elders pray for some of those needs and concerns that are heavy on our hearts, and yet also I love it as they follow in obedience to pray for those in authority over us, to pray for the work of the gospel around the world. Public prayer is a means of experiencing the grace of God. It's more than a formality. 
So let me just close with a couple of thoughts. When Jesus died on the cross, he gave us a great gift. It was personal. You have to receive it. It's meaningful. It's surprising and it's ongoing. And so I have a couple of questions for you. First of all, have you received his gift of salvation? Have you responded to it? Have you said, yes, I believe. I I repent of my sin and I trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Secondly, are you daily experiencing his work of grace through his word, through prayer? And finally, have you obediently followed him in baptism? If you haven't done that, if you've not responded to the gift of grace or you've not followed him in baptism, then, then let's, get it, let's get together. Let's have